Welcome and thank you for coming tonight. <laughs> You're going to see enough of my ugly face later on in the program, but right now I have a privilege to introduce a very special person, our guest speaker. Very few people working in comics today can be called living legends. Frank Miller is a member of that select group. Since his humble beginnings penciling Daredevil to his phenomenal rise to stardom on The Dark Knight Returns to his legendary Sin, Sin City series, Frank has been and always will be one of the most talented people in the business as one of the leading advocates for creator's rights. Practically everyone in the comic industry knows of him or has heard of him, so there's no real sense in recapping his career or one that has shined so brightly. So just let me simply say, ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Frank Miller, our guest speaker. Thanks. Thanks a lot. Thank you all. Thank you, Steve. And thanks to Diamond for inviting me over here and giving me this opportunity. And I also want to thank Dark Horse for all the arrangements and efforts they made. And I just want to quickly say that they're a real darn good publisher. Now, I want to get started by asking you all to join me in honoring two very good men we've recently lost. Um, corny about this kind of thing to ask you all to stand up. So if you'd all please stand. A round of applause, please, for as dear a friend as comics has ever had, Mr. Don Thompson. And another round. Let's make this an even bigger one. I want the walls to shake this time. For the greatest artist in the history of comics, Mr. Jack Kirby. All right. I think they're almost shaking. Come on. Okay. Well, it's a pretty big room, but I think he did it. I think they shook. And they had a shake for that one, for Jack, uh, just like they would have on one of his pages. And age passes with Jack Kirby. Now, comics folks, we're all fond of naming ages for comics. You know, we've come up with a half dozen for the last half dozen years. But a very big age of comics is coming to an end now. And... Uh, I've got to say, I can't call it the Marvel Comics, the Marvel Age of Comics, because I don't believe in rewarding thievery. I call it the Jack Kirby Age of Comics. By saying this, by saying this, I mean no disrespect at all to the outstanding works outstanding and remarkable works of Stan Lee and Steve Ditko and many others. We are in their debt as well. But it was Jack Kirby who defined the style and method of every comic artist who followed him. There is before Kirby, and there is after Kirby. One age does not resemble the next. The king is dead. There is no successor to that title. We will never see his like again. There are many others we should honor tonight. Too many, far too many. Comics have been around long enough for us to lose the generation that gave us the art form and the industry we celebrate tonight. They leave us with their example of the best thing about our little corner of art and commerce, their love, their love of comics. For most of you, as it is for me, I know that love has been lifelong. And to our families, schoolmates, and acquaintances, it's always seemed a little unnatural, hasn't it? It's always seemed a little weird, hasn't it? Bear, me, bear with me while I tell you about Frankie Markham and how I fell in love with comics. 
I was a skinny kid in grade school, the gangly kind of kid who grows tall too fast and falls down too much playing softball. Frankie Markham was my nemesis. Frankie Markham was mean and ugly, and he was a number of years older than I was. He was a tough-ass farm boy, a bully. He must have been almost 12 years old. You know what I mean, a grown-up. Me, I started out wanting to be Superboy. My mom was kind enough to sew, to sew me a Superboy suit, and I often wore it under my school clothes. And only to a crowd like this would I admit that. <laughs> but there came the day when I had to stop being Superboy. That was the day Frankie Markham slapped me around and punched out my friend Craig. He punched Craig so hard that it dislodged the braces from his teeth. Craig was a bloody mess, and I was bawling like a baby. That was all I could do, just bawl like a baby. And I knew I couldn't be Superboy anymore. It was time for this third grader to grow up, and I did. I developed a new pragmatic worldview. I decided to do the mature thing, the grown-up thing. I decided I was Spider-Man. Spider-Man had trouble with bullies, too. They embarrassed him in front of the girls. They called him names. But he put up with it, concealing the secret of his awesome power. He put up with it, and he put up with it, and he put up with it, just like me. He put up with it, and he put up with it, and he put up with it, until... And now my story moves toward its sense-shattering climax. At least I wish it did. I'd love to say that I kicked Frankie Markham's ass from Vermont to Wisconsin, but I never did that. I never had a fight with Frankie Markham, and I'd have lost it if I had. But I did learn to fight back against the bullies, with my wits and with my fists. And Spider-Man helped. I gained courage, I learned to control my arms and legs, and I fought back. And somewhere along the way, I even earned Frankie Markham's respect, and Spider-Man helped. It was years later the last time I saw Frankie Markham. I, I was driving then, so I must have been about 17 years old. And I was driving down some back road, and there he was, some back road in Vermont, and there he was, standing by the road, hitchhiking. So I pulled over and picked him up and rode him to some, drove him to some other, you know, back road somewhere. And along the way, he told me that he heard I was moving to New York City, and that I was going to become a comic book artist. And he thought that was really cool. So then I let him off, and I watched him lumber off. I watched Frankie Markham lumber off down that back road. My, my old nemesis, all of a sudden, he seemed really small and sad. Not very often at all, I think about what happened to Frankie Markham. Comics have always been desperately important to me as a refuge, as inspiration, as a vehicle for my fantasies, and as a career. I know I'm not alone, not in this room, in loving what comics are and what they can do. It's that love that built this industry. Jack Kirby was the biggest and brightest of a generation that brought so much love to the page that our entire industry is built upon it. It was an amazing generation, an epic generation. When you think of what they did, they clawed their way out of the Great Depression, and just this month we were celebrating how they stormed the beaches of Normandy, beat Hitler, and quite literally saved the world. And along the way, they, in their generosity, gave us the comic book. And now I'm lucky enough to be enough of a player in this field to be invited to speak to you all about the future of comic books, and I will. But there's no way to talk about the future of comics without addressing its past. There's no way to properly understand where we are now and where we are going without looking at where we have been. And our history is so clouded by misconceptions and outright lies that I have to dispel a few of them just to help us all think straight. Too often our villains have written our history. It's very important that we keep in mind that up until very, very recently, everything that was any damn good about comics was done in spite of the rules of the game, not because of them. Men like Jack Kirby and Joe Shuster and Jerry Siegel and Steve Ditko and Wallace Wood, they brought such generous love to the page and such joy to our lives and so much money to our bank accounts that it's easy to forget, it's way too easy to forget that they were treated disgracefully. Ours is a sad, sorry history. We have to keep that in mind while we're in this room enjoying this. A sad, sorry history of broken lives, of suicides, of brilliant talents treated like galley slaves. 
Chomsky denied the legal authorship to what they created with their own hands and minds, ignored or treated as nuisances while their creations went on to make millions and millions of dollars. An industry kept alive by love in spite of all of this. The love they gave the page, it was a powerful thing. We must honor our dead, and we must understand our history. We cannot move forward without looking very clearly at where we have been. Misconceptions, outright lies. Misconceptions, here's a whopper. The dreaded 1950s. Frederick Wortham, the outside world. It seems a week doesn't go by where I don't sit down with my comics buyer's guide and read somebody somewhere fretting about the outside world and how they're bound to notice our adventures are getting a little more adventurous. Nobody's come after us in any big way, but there's a little bit of a stink of censorship in the air, isn't there? I mean, there's that noise about Janet Reno and Paul Simon and Beavis and Butthead, isn't there? And we all know what happened last time, don't we? In the 50s, with Frederick Wortham in the Senate hearings. They shut us down, didn't they? The outside world went and noticed us, and then the United States Senate held hearings and decided comic books caused juvenile delinquency. So we had to institute the comics code, right? Our backs were against the wall, right? Wrong. Dead wrong. They didn't. The Senate vindicated us. Frederick Wortham failed. This is how screwy our sense of our own history is. Most people in comics don't realize that the Senate vindicated us. After due consideration, the United States Senate decided comic books were not a cause of juvenile delinquency. We were vindicated. Even back then, even in the paranoid 1950s, even then, against the backdrop of book burnings, Hollywood blacklists, even in the most paranoid decade of this century, Frederick Wortham failed. The Senate did not rule to censor comic books. We were vindicated. Why then the Comics Code? Abject cowardice, maybe? Maybe. Partly, but not entirely. We were vindicated. Why did the comics industry go and adopt a code of self-censorship far stricter than any entertainment? Why would a healthy, vital industry selling comics by the truckload, held by the trainload, go and castrate itself? Why? Well, the answer to that may just make you all a little sick to your stomachs, the ones who don't know. See, comics publishers in the 50s had a problem, and this problem had a name, and the name was William Gaines. William Gaines was that rarest of creatures, a brilliant publisher. His EC comics outsold everybody else's because they were better than everybody else's by a long shot. The other publishers couldn't compete with him, not fairly anyway. So they used the free-floating fear of the time to shut him down. If you read the comics code, and I have, you'll see that it was written with no purpose and more noble than driving EC Comics out of business, and that's what it succeeded in doing. Um, I got an example because I've got the comics code right here. It's one of the later editions, but it's still got some pretty good stuff in it. Um, a little hard to open, but... Um, just a minute, bear with me, I'm having a little trouble here. Here's just a couple of quick excerpts. Um, this is on uh, General Standards Part A, Paragraph 12. No, Paragraph 11. The letters of the word crime on a comics magazine cover shall never be appreciably greater in dimension than other words contained in the title. The word crime shall never appear alone on a cover. See you, Johnny Craig. And here we got General Standard, Standards Part B. Oh, here's a good one. Paragraph A, no comics magazine shall use the word horror or terror in its title. A noble effort, folks. But that's why we had the stupid comics code for all those decades. Not to protect children, not to satisfy the United States Senate, and not to mollify Frederick Wortham. 
We were stuck with the comics code for all those dumb decades because a pack of lousy publishers in the 50s wanted to shut down Bill Gaines. Misconceptions, that one continues to haunt us because of something that never happened. Our industry cringes like a battered child every time there's a hint of a threat from the outside world. And every few years, the fear talk starts again. Every few years, the producers of stories about heroes who never give up start whimpering that we should fold up our tents and surrender to an enemy who hasn't even shown up. These days, the fashionable form of self-censorship is a rating system. So that's what people suggest. Cover advisories are waved like a magic wand that'll chase away the censors. Cover advisories. Little apologies printed in the corner of the comic. Nobody will bother us if we apologize. If the stormtroopers come after us, we'll be safe if we say we're sorry. Come on, what kind of self-delusion is this? Do cover advisories help Omaha the Cat Dancer or Yummy Fur or any of the other comics seized in busts? No. They pointed them out, if anything. That's the first reason why cover advisories are a bad idea. They simply don't work. All they do is save the censors a little time. Please understand, I believe that you should know what you're ordering. Solicitation forums should tell you if a given comic might be trouble so you can make your informed decision in your shop, in your community, about how you want to handle the comic or if you want to carry it at all. That's your decision. And it's my duty to put together my comic so that the format, the price point, and the cover honestly represent the contents. It's all a matter of choices, yours and mine, and whether we'll be left free to make them. <clears throat> Sorry, throat gets dry. All these you know, antiseptic environments can really get to you. I know I'm not out on the front lines like you folks are, and I don't pretend to be. Nobody's going to become storming into my studio and try to take my brushes and pens and paper away. But we are in this together. When you lose, I lose. And that's why I'm happy to report that I've been given some opportunity to help a bit. Dennis Kitchen broke the cowardly tradition of comics history by creating the Comic Book Legal Defense Fund, the first organization designed to fight censorship rather than surrender to it. Well, Dennis invited me to be on their board of directors, and I didn't give him a chance to come to his senses. I accepted the post. We have to be brave when and if the censors come. We have to stand up and stand tough and give the bully a bloody nose. Apologies will only encourage the Frankie Markhams out there to come back for more. There's another reason, and I believe it's more serious and much more subtle, why cover advisories are the first step toward disaster in our future. We are not part the electronic media. We don't play Hollywood's game with the censors. We're not bought and sold. We're part of a smaller, better industry, publishing. Bookstores don't apologize for selling books to adults. Writers of prose don't submit their works to a pack of rating system bureaucrats or sit there with their notepad or the computer after they've gotten a good idea and think, are we talking an R here? Book publishers use the First Amendment of the United States as a protection against censorship. Cover advisories, I believe, have a corrosive effect. And I'll be bold enough to say that I believe that every time a publisher decides to use one, and every time an artist agrees to allow one on his work, he is, in a, in a very small way, cutting away at the tether that, protects us to the, that connects us to the book industry and its First Amendment protection. I believe that every cover advisory is a signal to lazy parents and opportunistic public politicians that we are theirs for the taking. We're better than that. We've got too much love for that. We won't let misconceptions about our own history make us derail our, our future. We're better than that. Misconceptions, outright lies. Too often our history has been written by its villains. Lies, here's a string of them, all about the same man. Neil Adams is crazy. Neil Adams just didn't like to work. Neil Adams was just being a troublemaker. 
I can testify as a first-hand witness, if there's ever an accurate history of comics written, Neil Adams will be recognized not just as a brilliant and influential artist, but as a visionary, as a pioneer, as one of the heroes of our field. And if our future is as bright as I believe it can be, Neil Adams will be appreciated as a man who helped us turn a crucial corner toward that future. I was there, I can testify. Neil Adams recognized that the talent was treated disgracefully. As much as he loved the doing of comics, and I've never seen anybody work harder, anybody who saw him can testify to this. I've never seen anybody work harder. The flu didn't stop this guy. But as much as he loved the doing, Neil was willing to sacrifice hours and days that amounted to years of a brilliant career, all to gain some measure of justice for Siegel and Schuster and others. These days, cartoonists negotiate over how high a royalty is to be paid, not whether one is to be paid at all. Neil came into a field where royalties were unheard of, a field where publishers routinely allowed original artwork to be stolen or shredded. Did you know that at least one major publisher used to routinely shred the original artwork? Now, I ask you to picture something from the golden age, something by your favorite artist, Joe Kubert, whoever, Carmine Infantino. Back then they worked bigger. The originals were bigger. Now imagine taking this, taking a Joe Kubert page, for instance, shoving it into a shredder and watching the little fingers come out the other end. I've just described to you the first work that one publisher gave to several comic book writers who are working today who told me about it. That's what Neil inherited. And Neil was one of the very few people who helped change all this. Along the way, he taught a younger generation, my generation, that our work was worthy of respect, that our efforts deserve to be rewarded, that our families need not go hungry while our creations went on to make millions. He taught me, he showed me that company loyalty at the time was an oxymoron that only a moron could believe. Neil had to be very patient. We really don't learn until it happens to us, do we? There's always that, there was always that little voice in the head that said, well, that was a long time ago, what they did to Siegel and Schuster and Kirby and Ditko. I mean, that was an awfully long time ago. So it's no wonder that a lot of us were surprised when we learned that 17 years of loyal service and spectacular sales didn't buy Chris Claremont one whit of loyalty from Marvel Comics. That was just one of the many lessons learned by my generation. Now that we've learned them, it's astounding to find out how many allies Neil Adams had and how well they disguised themselves the whole time. A few months ago, I read a release from Defiant Comics and found out that Jim Shooter has spent his whole career fighting for creators' rights. He could have knocked me over with a feather. I knew that Shooter was talented and accomplished, and I knew he had something to do with the Legion of Superheroes, but I had no idea he was Duo Damsel. Misconceptions. Lies. Here's one lie you can almost forgive given the current condition of its source. Marvel Comics is trying to sell you all on the notion that the characters are the only important component in comics. As if nobody ever had to create these characters. As if the audience is so brain dead they can't have a good job from a bad one. You can almost forgive them this since their characters aren't leaving in droves like the talent is. For me, it's a bit of a relief to finally see the old work-made-for-hire, talent-don't-matter mentality put to the test. We've all seen the results, and they don't even seem to be rearranging the deck chairs. And the way Marvel's treating you all, there are things I've been hearing about. I'll tell you, I'd half expect that if I snuck past Terry Stewart's secretary and threw his office and into the boardroom and saw who the real boss of Marvel Comics was, I might find out what happened to Frankie Markham after all. Marvel Comics has been caught flat-footed and dumbstruck by a sea change in our industry. They're paying the price for separating the talent from the characters as if one is worth a damn without the other.
And they're showing why creator ownership is so important. Not just to me, that's obvious, but to you as well. When I'm out on the road at conventions or store signings, there's a question I get asked just about every time. Now, comics fans tend to be a really polite bunch. There's usually a little bit of anger in their eyes when one of them will stand up and ask, how come people leave books? You know, we loved your Batman, why didn't you stay? We loved your Daredevil, why didn't you stay? There's a whole pile of answers to that one. You run out of steam, you have a fight with your collaborator, blah, 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 things happen. But the main reason a lot of us leave best-selling titles for work for higher publishers is simple. You get sick of feeling like a schmuck. Don't get me wrong here. Like everybody else of my generation, I knew the score coming in. I knew that I was playing with the company's toys. I knew that in characters I created could be turned into cannon fodder for other people. I knew that when I was promised that nobody else would be allowed to write Electra, I knew that promise would be kept right up until the moment it was convenient for them to break it, which is exactly what they did. I knew that all my efforts wouldn't amount to hill of beans if some editor wanted my job or had a buddy who did and up and fired me. And don't take my word for that one. It doesn't matter how well the book's selling. Ask Chris Claremont. Ask Louise Simonson. Ask Joe Duffy. Yeah, I knew all that, and I knew that I was strip mining the past instead of building the future. That was the game. I knew it, and I played it, and I had a ball. But after a while, I did start feeling like a schmuck. So I took the risk, and I broke away. And I signed on with a younger publisher, Dark Horse, one of several publishers who've come along to offer better terms, publishers not trapped in the old grab-it-all, keep-it-all ways. And I'm happier now than I've ever been. I own Sin City. Nothing can be done with Sin City without my permission. I can't keep my hands off Sin City. I love Sin City. The love we give the page, it's a powerful thing. And now I can finally give that angry fan an answer that I could never have given him before. If it's Sin City, I write it. If it's Sin City, I draw it. Every time. That's a promise, no exceptions, no fill-in issues. That's a promise. It's a promise I can only make because I own Sin City. The creator bound to his creation, the creator in charge of his creation. It's better for me, and it is better for you. Things are on their way to getting a whole lot better for both of us. But still the old fearful mindset persists, the old self-contempt, and never has it been more shamelessly displayed than in the resentment and hatred that's been aimed at Image Comics. For decades, business practices caused a steady, slow brain drain, driving talent away one by one. One by one, each individual artist more or less replaceable. There were always new kids to come along and feed the machine. Then along come ringmaster Todd McFarlane and his amazing friends. Instant millionaires, I'm told. Their popularity at a fever pitch. They had it made. They had money. They had fame. They had no reason to leave, except they were smart enough to realize that the best you can get under work made for hire is the status of a well-paid servant. So they left. Brilliantly, they left all at once. <laughs> Consider this. Todd McFarlane and his pals turned their back on guaranteed wealth and guaranteed fame. They risked all of that on something that had never been tried before, an imprint that re represented a group of talent rather than a bankroll. And it was a gamble. Believe me, it was a gamble. When you take chances like that and you pull it off, later it doesn't seem like that. But I'm sure that Todd and Jim and Rob and the rest all had some long nights, very lonely, wondering if they'd made the mistake of their lives. But they gambled and they won. And along the way, they shattered the work made for higher mentality, showing how unnecessary it is. Even more surprisingly, they broke Marvel's stranglehold in the marketplace. The kids went with them. And people hate them for this. 
Consider this, the best-selling comic book in the country is creator-owned, and artists aren't celebrating. Too many of us are acting like galley slaves complaining that the boat is leaking. Consider this, I wrote an issue of Spawn and it was called, called a sellout. Consider that. But nobody called me a sellout when I made Dark Knight and made more money from Batman than Bill Finger, Jerry Robinson, and Dick Sprang combined. Consider this, because of Image Comics, artists enjoy new opportunities and are paid better, even at Marvel Comics, and nobody said thank you. Let me be the first then. Gentlemen, thank you. And let me throw this in. Speaking is when it was out in the trenches a few years earlier. You're welcome, too. And now Image has inspired legend and bravura, and I'm sure other talent-based incomes to come. Imprints to come, sorry about that. We are headed for better times and better, better comics. There are new self-publishers and new publishers ready to offer fair and honorable ter terms. New homes for new creations in a field that has been starving for something new and fresh. The future of comics. I know this has been a scary time for many of you, maybe all of you. The Marvel Age of Superhero Universes, the Jack Kirby Age of Comics, is coming to an end. It's gone supernova and burned itself out and begun its slow, steady collapse into a black hole. We couldn't feed off the genius of Jack Kirby forever. The king is dead and he has no successor. We will not see his like again. No single artist can replace him. No art form can be expected to be gifted with more than one talent as brilliant as his. The rest of us, we will build upon what he gave us. We'll bring our best efforts, our own quirky, mischievous, sometimes rude efforts. We'll screw up, we'll get lucky. We'll do right, we'll do wrong. We'll make comics that are diverse and wild. We'll take chances. And we'll need you to take chances, too. When you hear about next week's new work made for higher superhero universe, please don't stifle that yawn. Take a chance on the new comics. Look for the ones where the creator has every reason to stay and can't be fired because he owns it, because it is his and it is him. It's a scary time because change is always scary. But all the pieces are in place for a new proud era, a new age of comics. And nothing's standing in our way. Nothing too really big and awful. Nothing except some old bad habits and our own fears, and we won't let them stop us. We'll drop them off on some back road like I did with Frankie Markham. We won't wonder what happened to them. Not very often we won't. And we won't let them stop us. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the prestige event of the 11th Annual Retailers Seminar, the 4th Annual Diamond Gem Awards. And here's your host, Steve Jeppy.
Welcome, everyone, to the fourth annual Diamond Gem Awards presentations. I notice you noticed tonight, I'm sure you've noticed tonight, our program book. By now, I'm sure it's crossed your mind that you're a day early. Really, that's not the case. Truth of the matter is, we're so conscious of our customers over in London, this show is being broadcast simultaneously, a five-hour time difference. For their benefit, we put the 13th on the cover. You know, the Diamond Gem Awards were created to recognize the very best that our industry has to offer. And each year, this gets to be more and more exciting event. And quite frankly, to feed all 3,000 of you, or whatever that number is, it gets more and more expensive. So I, I beg your forgiveness, but since it's gotten so expensive, we've had to go outside and get a little bit of help to support this. Actually, the bidding war just closed recently, and it was really a tough, tough call between the sponsors who were bidding to do the commercials during our GEM Awards. But one stood out that we just edged out the competition, and we decided to uh, go with them. So I'll be right back after a brief word from our sponsor. Every day, Steve Jeppy struggles with his long-distance service, billing issues, phantom service representatives, slower connections. It was a communications nightmare. Lucky for Steve, he switched back for the AT&T Business Advantage. Now Steve has the most reliable long-distance calling available. AT&T works for me. And now Steve's world is safe for success. Let AT&T work for you. Do we have it all or what? It's amazing the things we pull off. Can you imagine the foresight that I had, what, a year ago when we were planning this event to strategically set up a situation where tomorrow night's game at Camden Yards, the Orioles would claim first place alongside with the New York Yankees. Can you imagine that? I was just dying to take a shot at all these New York Yankee fans because I know they'll abuse me tomorrow night should we lose. By the way, I won't be here Tuesday if we do. 1993 was a year to remember. For while much of the country's industry suffered from the recession, the comics and entertainment fields continued to flourish. Just how does Diamond decide what will be listed on the Gem Awards ballot each year? We don't use supercomputers, and no, we don't use an accounting firm. No, it's not as complicated as any of that. Each annual presentation of the Diamond Gem Awards begins many months before the awards are even handed out. At Diamond, we've assembled one of the most knowledgeable staffs of collectors and product specialists in the business today. And it's their job to choose the items we carry. Among the thousands of products created, manufactured, and distributed in a year, certain items will stand out above all the others. Many of these standout products eventually make it onto the ballots for the GEM Awards. But there are always some surprises. Granted, we could just pick a few, cho a few choice products and decide which ones would win, but where's the challenge? Instead, we felt that you, our retailer, should have a say in what you thought were the best products of the previous year. Thus, the GEM Award ballots were included in Diamond's order forms so you could help us decide who was the best of the best. Write-in space was also included on ballots for you to voice your own choices. And what is the end result of all this? Those who receive the most votes are awarded the Diamond Jemmy, a stylish symbol of our appreciation for their providing top quality products to us. Well, that's the short course on how the Diamond Gem Award nominees are chosen. We hope you enjoy the show. Our first category, Best Comic Book of the Year, 1993, with an under $3 cover price. Action Comics, number 687, the collector's edition, published by DC Comics. My slide coming up there? There it is, making sure. Adventures of Superman, number 500, the collector's edition, published also by DC Comics. Death Blow, number one, published by Image Comics. Deathmate Prologue, published by Valiant. 
Did I go on too fast for you guys? Magnus Robot Fighter, number 25, published by Valiant. What a number in this category. Spawn, number 11, 11 published by Image Comics. Wonder who that was. X-Men, number 2099, number one, published by Marvel Comics. And we can have help from our lovely assistant here, Miss Kathy Christian, who was with us last year, also known in her alter ego as Vampirilla from Harris Publications. And if I can get this out of the envelope, the Jemmy goes for the best comic book of the year, 1993, under $3.00. The Adventures of Superman, number 500, Collector's Edition, DC Comics. And accepting the award in his fashionable attire is our own beloved Bob Wayne. Thank you. Unaccustomed as I am to speaking before you, I'll try to keep this brief. Uh, at DC Comics, we are very pleased to accept this reward, award on behalf of everyone at DC, uh, the entire Superman crew, uh, headed up by editor Mike Carlin, and especially guys who uh, really were the linchpins on that book, Jerry Ordway, Tom Grummet, and Doug Hazelwood. Uh, on behalf of all of the Superman crew, we thank you very, very much. By the way, how do you like these gems we have up here on the side? Is this a class act or what? I'm waiting for the big guys to come. They're going to carry that off. Anyway, for the best comic book of the year, over $3 for 1993, the nominees are Amazing Spider-Man, number 375, published by Marvel Comics. Batman, number 500, the collector's edition, published by DC Comics. Cable, number one, published by Marvel Comics. Superman, number 82, published by DC Comics. Torok, number one, published by Valiant. And Uncanny X-Men, number 300, published by Marvel Comics. And the Jemmy goes to... The best comic book of the year, Batman number 500, collector's edition, DC Comics again. Accepting the award, publisher of DC Comics, Mr. Paul Levitz. Thank you all for your support, both for the Batman and the Superman programs of last year. And for this, on behalf of group editor Denny O'Neill and the entire Batman team, and particularly also for cover editor Curtis King, whose design on the cover with the special die cut made it so special. And our next category is Magazine of the Year. 1993. Our first nominee is Cards Illustrated, published by Warrior Publications. Our second nominee is Hero Illustrated, published by Warrior Publications. Third nominee is Overstreet's Comic Book Monthly, published by Overstreet Publications. And Wizard, The Guide to Comics, Comics published by Wizard Press. And the Jemmy for the best magazine of the year for 1993 goes to Wizard, the Guide to Comics. <laughs> Accepting the award for Wizard is publisher Garrett Seamus. Garrett? 